Tonight we are in 1 Samuel chapter 4 through 7, so let's go before the Lord with a word of prayer. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We're so, Lord, just blessed that we get to be your kids. And we get to sit at your feet, Lord, as you instruct us through your word tonight. Lord, no matter who sits behind this pulpit and, and, and teaches, Lord, we know that you are our teacher. And we want to hear from your spirit tonight through your word. And so, Lord, soften our hearts, Lord, where some parts of our hearts have gotten hard. Lord, may we be ready to not just be hearers of your word tonight, Lord, but I pray that we would be doers of your word. So be among us tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Tonight, we continue our study of the book of 1 Samuel. And remember, easy to remember the content of 1 Samuel because it's really about three individuals. Three guys is what this book is about. First of all, first part of the book is about Samuel. And we'll wrap up that section tonight. Samuel, one of the greatest prophets and priests of the Old Testament. And we, we learned about his early life uh, last week. And we'll read about some of his ministry and the world that he lived in tonight. And then we're going to get to King, King Saul uh, next week, starting actually this, uh, this Sunday, this Saturday night or Sunday, as we'll look at Israel requesting a king. So much we need to learn and consider uh, this. This, this weekend together if you're around to be with us. And then the third person this book is about is David. He'll become King David in 2 Samuel, but we meet the man David and we see just a man after God's heart in the latter part of the book of 1 Samuel. So first part of the book is about Samuel. And last week we saw his parents, that he had some godly parents. Yes, they had issues, but what human do you know that doesn't? And uh, they had issues. Elkanah had two wives, never a good idea. Elkanah did probably just to continue on his name because his first wife Hannah was barren but they love the Lord even with their issues every year Every year they'd go to the, to the tabernacle in Shiloh and they would offer sacrifices to the Lord and just meet with the Lord, which was rare for people to do that in the time in which Samuel's parents lived. So we had some godly parents. And then we also recognized last week the uh, preparation that God did in his life. Samuel was prepared really in two ways. Number one, by the bad examples. Remember Eli's sons? I mean, they were wicked in what they were doing. They were taking more than God ever intended them to take from the people. They were sleeping with women that would come to worship. It was just disgusting what was going on with Samuel's sons, or no, Samuel's sons, but, but Eli's sons. But Samuel learned from that and learned what not to do. He also learned as he learned to hear from the Lord and just let God speak and minister into his life. Well, tonight we get to Samuel's predicament, the world that he lived in, the world he was called to serve God in. And again, remember the age of Samuel, we're just coming out of the time of the judges where there were certainly men and women like Ruth and Boaz who loved God. There were men and women like, like Samuel's parents, Elkanah and Hannah, who loved God. But also remember, this was a time where most of the nation did what was right in their own eyes. I mean, the, the, again, Judges 17, 18, 19, that's your reference. Some horrible, disgusting stuff was happening during the time that Samuel was alive and ministering. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And because of those choices, God, as he did in the book of Judges, would raise up foreign powers to afflict the children of Israel so eventually they would turn back to him. 
And the timing of the first few chapters of the book of Samuel is really closely related to the time of Samson that we read about in the book of Judges. Samuel lived either either during the time of Samson or right after the time of Samson. So the major problem, the major predicament facing the nation at this time was a people group known as the Philistines. And before we get too deep into the text tonight, this is probably the best time to take just a couple of minutes and explain to every one of us who these Philistines were, who will dominate the rest of 1 Samuel and even into 2 Samuel, and they'll be a thorn in Israel's side for generations to come. So who were the Philistines? Well, a couple of fast facts about them. First of all, first thing you've got to note, so important, is they were not from the Middle East. Different than the Moabites, the Amorites, the Midianites, all the other people groups we read about in the book of Judges and other parts of the scripture, those people lived in the region, were from that region. The Philistines were different. They came from the Aegean Sea. And so a map should be coming up in front of you. And the Aegean Sea is what is today around the area of Greece. The islands that are around what is today, again, Greece. They're in the southern part of Europe. Most scholars believe they came from the island of Crete. That's that little island there at the bottom of the Aegean Sea. Some thought they may have even come from Cyprus or even further north into the Aegean. If we kind of back it out, now into the map of the Mediterranean. The Aegean's kind of on that right side. Israel's down in your bottom right-hand corner, and Egypt is right below that. And keep that map up there for a second, because what history tells us is these Philistines came from the Aegean. They came from the, the region of what is today in and around Greece, and they came down to invade the Hittites, which lived in what is today Turkey, kind of right there above the nation of Israel, and they came down into the land of Egypt. And that brings up the second fast fact we need to understand about the Philistines. They're not originally from the Middle East, and secondly, they're known in history as the Sea People. You history buffs that maybe have kind of had a cursory reading of Egyptian history or Hittite history, you've heard this term before, the Sea People, because both the the, the nation of Egypt and the nation of the Hittites have a period of their history where these people just appeared from the sea, and they were warlike, they were mean, and they just came ashore and started to massacre citizens of the Hittite Empire and citizens of the Egyptian Empire. And these wars with the these sea people went on for years until eventually the Hittites and the Egyptians got the upper hand. After some time, they kicked the Philistines, or they called them the sea peoples, out of the region of Turkey today, out of the region of Egypt today, and they finally settled in what is today the Gaza Strip. So if we put up a map of Israel uh, next there, you can see that I know it's kind of hard to see maps up on the screen, but that red region, I like the one that has colors because it's easy to see. That red region there is what is today the Gaza Strip. And back in Israel's history, that was where the Philistines lived. They had five major cities, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Gath, and Ekron, all located today in what is the Gaza Strip. Now, That also brings up another question. Are the modern-day Palestinians 
in any way related to the ancient Philistines. And that's fun fact number three about the Philistines. They are not in any way related to the Palestinians. I bring that up because sometimes in modern scholarship and in modern universities to somehow give the Palestinians an earlier right to the land than the Jews, they'll say, well, their names are so close. They are the relatives of the ancient Philistines. Not true other than the fact that they lived in the same region, there is no connection at all between the current Palestinians and the Philistines of old. Remember, the Philistines were not of Arab descent. They were from European descent. They were from the Aegean Sea. The Palestinians are Arabs. The Philistines will dominate the region until King David comes on the scene, and God will use him to put the Philistines under submission, but they'll continue to be a thorn in Israel's side until the Assyrian and the Babylonian empires will come down, take not just the Jewish people captive, but everybody in the region captive. And at that time, the Philistines leave the pages of history. The Romans, who will later come in and dominate the area, they named the region Palestine. And the reason they did this was really to spite the Jewish people. They named Palestine, or Israel's country, after the ancient Philistines. It's not really clear in English because Palestine and Philistine sounds different in English, but it's very close in its roots in Latin. It's very close in its Hebrew roots. And so this is where the Romans got the name. They named the region Palestine after the ancient enemies of Israel, the Philistines. Then Arabs from Jordan and Egypt later came into the region, took the name Palestinians because that was the name the region was given. But there is no DNA link whatsoever to any Canaanite people or Philistine people who were there before the Jewish people. The Jewish people have the oldest claim of any people still around to the land of Israel. They purchased most of the modern state of Israel from Arabs whose very descendants now have claimed that Israel stole the land. They didn't steal it. They paid your great-granddaddy for it. They bought the title deed to the land. And then, of course, we have God who owns the land and he has given it to the Jewish people. Just to clear things up, because I love to be politically correct, thought I would start our study that way. So that's who the Philistines are. They are a warrior tribe of people from somewhere in the Aegean Sea near what is today Greece who afflicted first the Hittites and the Egyptian empires. Eventually they were banished out of those countries and they landed in what is today the Gaza Strip and they started their affliction of Israel. With that background, now we look at 1 Samuel 4 through 7 through the lens of the Philistines and their interactions with the Jewish people. Four things tonight for you note takers. We're going to see the Philistine army takes the ark in chapter 4. We're going to see the Philistine God bows to the Lord in in 1 Samuel chapter 5. We're going to see the Philistine lords return the ark back to Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 6. And then finally the Philistine people are confused and defeated by the Lord in 1 Samuel chapter 7. 
So let's look at that one at a time, starting here in chapter 4. And we read the story of how Israel loses the ark. Chapter 4, verse 1. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. And Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped beside Ebenezer. And the Philistines encamped at Aphek. And the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel. And when they joined in battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. And when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has God defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. And when the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly, the earth shook. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what does the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. So the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for such a thing has never happened before. Woe to us, who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They don't really understand what's going on. These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all their plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, they tell each other, and conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines, that you don't become servants of the Hebrews as they have been to you. Conduct yourself like men and fight. So the Philistines fought Israel, and Israel was defeated. And every man fled to his tent. And there was a very great slaughter. There fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. That is a really great slaughter. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Then the man of Benjamin ran from the battle line the same day and came to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And he came and there was Eli, remember the old, the old high priest, sitting on a seat by the wayside watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told all the city, they cried out. And Eli heard the noise of the outcry and he said, what does this mean? What does the sound of this tumult mean? And the man came quickly and told Eli. Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were so so dim that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who came from the battle. And I fled today from the battle line. And he said, what's happened, my son? And so the messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there has been a great slaughter among the people. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. And then it happened. When he made mention of the ark of God, not not his sons, by the way, but the ark of God, Eli fell off the seat backwards by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for that man was old and heavy. And he judged, not just Ehud that's called a very fat man, so was Eli, he was heavy. And he judged Israel 40 years. Now, his daughter-in-law, Phinehas' wife, was with child, due to be delivered. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and gave birth, for her labor pains came upon her. And about that time her death of her death, the woman who stood by her said, Do not fear, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer, nor did she regard it. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory of the Lord has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law, and her husband and she said the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured 
As chapter 4 opens up, the Philistines have come out to, the, to battle the children of Israel. And at first, they defeat 4,000, which is a significant number, obviously, in itself. So Israel, what do they do? They blame God, you know, as they so often do. They don't look inward. They, they don't wonder, what have I done to him to have him remove his hand of blessing from me? No, they just think, Lord, why have you done this to us? And then, get this, church, they come up with a great idea, so they think. They, apparently, someone in the camp was watching an early release copy of the Raiders of the Lost Ark. 3,000 years before the movie was actually produced. Because they somehow get into their minds, if we bring the magic box into the battle and we take off the lid, then all these crazy things are going to fly out of it and we'll, 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 we'll be defeated just like the German army was defeated. Anyway, so obviously they didn't see this movie early. So we don't know why. They've, they have no idea. They, they, they just figure, we're going to bring the ark. And if you notice verse 3 of chapter 14, they say, it will save us. There's the problem. It will save us. They're relating it to be some kind of magic box that'll bring victory. It becomes like a lucky rabbit's foot for them. Which, by the way, someone will have to explain to me afterwards. Why is a rabbit's foot lucky? I mean, it obviously wasn't lucky for that rabbit. (laughs) There's no way that rabbit would say, yeah, that foot brought me a lot of luck now that it's dangling around your neck. (laughs) No no way. But anyways, I, I digress. The Jews are convinced the ark will save them. What they don't realize is all their past victories, their victory over Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, the ark wasn't even around for those events. The ark was later formed at the foot of Mount Sinai as God told them to build it. And even for the later victories, it wasn't the secret box. It was God who fought for them. And they are living in sin and living in rebellion from the top down as a nation. And so God has removed his hand of blessing and no box was going to change that. Only repentance was going to change that. And they were not ready for that as a people. And because of it, they lost much that day. Precious church, you and I have got to remember this. That our strength, our victory, our success in life isn't about any kind of program or person. It's not. It's not. It's about the Lord. You see, there's something in every one of us that kind of just drifts toward idolatry. We like to worship stuff we can see. We like to worship people that we can shake their hand. And it's not just true for American culture. You, you, You ever get a chance to go over to the nation of Israel? By the way, what a great thing to do. Hopefully someday we can do that soon as a church family. Man, just to to head over to the nation of Israel. I think it's the cost that's the problem. But anyways, if you ever get a chance to get over there, I mean, it's amazing to see the Bible stories come alive as you're there in the promised land. But one of the things that'll kind of irk you if you're a Bible student is, you know, they, they say they found the exact places that some stuff have happened. Like, this is the exact rock that Jesus broke the, the, the two loaves and the five fish. And, and you're like, are the two fish and the five loaves? But it, this, is, this is the exact rock it happened on. And then, of course, you know, they build a giant church over it and people come in and they're kissing the rock. And, and you walk in and you go, what? I mean, even if this is the general region where that miracle took place, this is the exact rock. 
In fact, I don't even remember reading about Jesus breaking the loaves on a rock. I think he just kind of did it and blessed the Lord. I don't even remember that part of the story. And yet people, oh, it's the rock. It's the rock. No, it's Jesus. Jesus is the one that did that. You go outside of Jerusalem, and it's so cool for you that are history-minded. They've excavated the, the city of Jerusalem, parts of it outside, to the very streets that were around when Jesus was walking around Jerusalem. And that's cool. It's cool for me to think, you know, this was the only way in Jerusalem in that day, coming from where Jesus was coming from. Jesus would have walked on this very cobblestone road. Like, that's cool for me. But you'll see people crawling along the ground, kissing the, you know, the, the path. And I just think the Lord's in heaven going, what are you doing? What are you doing? This was a street I walked on. It's me that's important. It's Jesus that's important. And we've got to remember because we can say, oh, we look at this other church and they're doing some kind of program. And we think that's the secret. If we do that program, our church will double in size. no. It's not about the program. It's not about the ark. It's not about the stones or the street. It's about the Lord and his word and his spirit. And precious believers, as we continue together, we've got to remember this. It's Jesus. It's him. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. It's him that we serve. It's him that we love. It's him. Because without him, what happened to Israel will happen to all of us. The glory departed. The ark was stolen. The high priest dies. His sons die. In fact, the only remaining lineage of the priest at this time, his mama names him Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. Not a great name for your little baby son. Oh, there you are. I'm going to name you. Everything's horrible in our nation. That's what she names him because she's honest about the situation. The glory has departed departed. And the even greater problem to someone who's sensitive to what's going on here is when another nation defeated you, they wrongly thought in the case of the Jews, what that meant was we also just defeated your God. You see, the Philistines were leaving the battlefield saying, not only did we, we whoop the Jews, but we whooped the God of the Jews as well. You see, God's character is suddenly in question, but If you're worried, don't worry. God will take care of his character. And that brings us to chapter 5. Look at this. This is great. This is is one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. Chapter 5. Then this is this is why you showed up tonight. This is some this is some good stuff right here. Then, 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 then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. That's one of those five cities of the Philistines there in what is today Gaza. And when the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and they set it by Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. And they took Dagon and set it in its place again. And when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen on his face. So the ground was before the ark, on the ground before the ark. And the head of Dagon and both his palms of his hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left. Therefore, neither the priest of Dagon nor any would come into Dagon's house, tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. But 
the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod, and he ravished them and struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how it, how it was, they said, the ark of, the, of, of God of Israel must remain with us, for his hand is harsh toward us and Dagon our God. Therefore, they sent and gathered themselves the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of God of Israel? And they answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be carried away to Gath. So they carried the ark of God of Israel away. And so it was when they had carried it away, the hand of the Lord was against that city with a very great destruction. He struck the men of that city, both great and small, with tumors that broke out on them. And therefore, they sent the ark of God to Ekron. And so it was when the ark of God came to Ekron. There are no fools in Ekron. They said, they've brought the ark of God of Israel to kill us and our people. So they sent and gathered together the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the Lord of Israel. Let it go back to its own place so that it does not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were stricken with the tumors and the heavy cry of the city went up to heaven. So check this out. The Philistines bring the ark of God into their temple to their false god Dagon. And again, why? Because the idea was our God can beat up your God. That was the idea. Our God's bigger than your God. And yet the Philistines are very quick to realize that though there's obviously some issues with the children of Israel, (laughs) there is nothing wrong with the God of Israel. For the next morning, the very next morning, the Philistines get up early to worship Dagon. Now understand, Dagon was this half fish, half human that people worshiped. In fact, we have an image of the god Dagon. We have an image. There it is. Oh, wait, 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 that's not the right one. My wife, my my youngest daughter is sick and she's not here. The whole reason I put that slide in there was for my wife. But anyways, that's not Dagon. No, that's Dagon. There we go. That's Dagon. That's this half fish, half man, this merman that they would worship as their God. And he was thought to be the father of Baal for you Bible students who will play prominently in the rest of the Old Testament. So verse 3 says, they got up early in the morning to worship Dagon, which I find is interesting, by the way, that the pagans have no problem with morning devotions. We say, oh, I can't, do, I don't know, I don't know if God would want that for me. I don't know if I can get up early. And The pagans got up early to worship their false gods. So they worshiped this half fish, half man, early in the morning, kind of like we do. And then, and then, and then, as they get up early, they find this God just fallen there before the ark. This giant statue of Dagon just in pieces before the ark of God. And they pick it up again and they put it back together. And I read that and I think, if your God has fallen and he can't get up, that is not... That is not a good God to worship. A God that you have to repair. A God that you've got to, I'll help you, God. I'll be, that's not a good God. How in the world can he help you? Now we laugh and we think it's silly and it is, but listen, when you get deeper into the the Philistines' love and worship for Dagon, it's pretty clear that the Philistines understood that this statue in their temple wasn't a God. It wasn't the statue that they loved. It was, listen, 
the practices of the worship of Dagon that they loved. The worship practices involved many deviant sexual rites and drunken parties. And it was the worship of Dagon they loved and that was that they were not willing to give up even when it was clear that their God could not hold a candle to the God of Israel. And I point that out to you because it's very similar to how we, we know, we know that lust is not a God. It can't save us. We know alcohol abuse is not a God. We know our bitterness is not a God. But it's the worship of those things that we choose not to abandon as pitiful as they are compared to the true and living God. We know that's true. We just love to worship at those, at those altars. And so this story is so insightful for you and I because I think it shows us how to have victory over those false gods. How do we have victory over lust? How do we have victory over bitterness? How do we have victory over over just a desire of covetousness that nothing ever seems to be enough? If you're like any one of us, don't think you're alone. You struggle in something. And you read Romans 7 and you go, that's me. The good things that I want to do, I don't. And the things that I don't want to do, I practice. Is there any hope for victory? Oh, there is. And I love this story to show us how. So often we want to focus on our sin that we want to overcome. We think on it. We tell others about it. We discuss it. We read books concerning it. And yet to me, it seems, the more we focus on our Dagon, our sin, the more it seems to rule our lives, the more it grips our lives. I'm not saying there isn't a place to confess your sins one to another. Amen. I'm not saying there isn't a place to get accountability and discipleship. Amen. But it seems to me the more we focus on our sin, the more it seems to give a stranglehold upon our lives. And then I read this story and I think, instead of obsessing about the sin, instead of obsessing on what a failure I am, how about if we start instead to obsess over Jesus Christ? Instead of saying, oh Lord, I promise I'll never do that again. I'll never struggle with that again. I'll never allow that in my life again. And then a day or two or ten later, we're, (laughs) sorry God, again. How about instead, we say, Lord, my heart is simply this. I want to see how close I can get to you. That's my only, that's my only worry. I don't want to worry about the sin. I want to worry about you and loving you and knowing you. I want every chance I get to open up this book and let it, let it speak into my life. Why? Because if I don't read my Bible and pray every day, God won't love me. What? No, that's not why we want to read our Bibles. It's not because God won't love you if you don't. It's because he is so lovely. 
And as I see him in the pages of Scripture, part of who I am is ripped away. Praise the Lord. And part of who he is is put in. I love seeing him in the pages of Scripture. I love coming to this place and just lifting my hands to the heavens and saying, Lord, you are God and I am not. But I hope worship for you goes beyond an hour, you know, a couple times a week here. It's what you do during the day. That you worship him. You see, the first commandment is what? You shall have no other gods before me. And sometimes we read that and we think, why would the Lord say that? Is he an egomaniac? Is he in heaven saying, my self-esteem is so brittle that if you don't worship me, Supremely, I don't know what I'm going to do. Really? That is so not where God is at. God doesn't need you to help his esteem. (laughs) God doesn't need you to help his glory. God knows who he is. He's not worried about it. So why does he say that? Because he's sharing with you and I a premise that there is nothing, listen, nothing, hear me, nothing you will ever put in your life that can ever compare to the glory of the Lord. No relationship, no matter how good it is. No substance, no matter how good it is. No pursuit, no ambition, nothing. Nothing can hold a candle to the Lord you and I serve. It's a premise, but listen, listen, listen. It's also a promise. It's also a promise that no other God will stand before him. That just like Dagon, Dagon couldn't do anything but just just fall down. The statue could nothing but just go to pieces in front of the presence of the Lord because no God will stand before him. Do you hear me on that, church? So instead of saying, how am I going to have victory? How am I going to defeat this addiction? How am I going to do this? What program? What 10 steps? Listen, it's one step. Enthrone Jesus Christ. Love on Jesus Christ. Embrace Jesus and watch the Dagons fall in your life. No matter what they are. You can't overcome bitterness. You just start loving Jesus. Well, if I don't, you just start loving Jesus. And you watch him start to fill your heart with love. You can't overcome lust. You just start loving Jesus. Oh, I can't get those pictures out of my mind. You just start loving Jesus. And watch what happens in your heart. Oh, I'm just so covetous. Start loving Jesus. And watch what he does. Watch what he does. You bring in the presence of the Lord. You know, that ark had three things in it, right? Three things in the ark. It had the law, the Ten Commandments. What does that speak of? It's our need for Christ. The law is our schoolmaster. I bring Christ in. I realize I can't do this on my own. I need you, Jesus. You've got to save me. I bring in the law, not not to perfect myself by the law, but to say, Lord, this helps me understand I need you. I can't do this on my own. There was the law. Secondly, secondly, there was the manna. What was that a picture of? Well, every day they get up early in the morning and they get their daily bread. What does that sound like? It sounds like the Bible, doesn't it? Every day, every day, 
Not legalistically. Not because God's mad at you if you don't, but because he's so lovely. As I read of him and I see his heart slowly but surely, I start to change. I start to change. The law of the manna and Aaron's rod. Aaron's rod was that story of submission when the children of Israel, oh, why, why should we serve Moses and Aaron? And God made Aaron's rod bud and it was just like, do it my way, kids. And I see these elements of the ark, just another picture of just bringing in Christ, realizing my need for Christ. The law shows me I need him. Realizing my need for his word every single day in my life. And then realizing I just need to submit to him. If you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. If you resist the devil, he will flee from you. How is that possible? Just do it. Just submit. Just do it and watch those Dagon's fall. The Philistines love the worship of Dagon too much, so they send the ark of God to the other Philistine city. And every place the ark goes, a plague and death follows. The towns where the ark shows up are struck with tumors and the people are dying. Now, you know, just, just to be clear, some translations don't translate it as tumors, but the King James Version actually says that he struck them with hemorrhoids. That's kind of gross. Especially when you consider the second place they sent the ark was Gath. Do you know who lived in Gath? The giants lived in Gath. That's a giant problem. That's a giant... Never mind. I won't... I got no slide for that. Just thought I would throw that out to you. You could actually thank Pastor Rob for that joke, believe it or not. But anyways... This is a serious issue facing the Philistines. So the Lord of the Philistines decide, let's send the ark back to Israel. And that brings us to chapter 6. Chapter 6, they, they, they send it back. Look at it with me. Now, the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines for seven months. And the Philistines called for the priest and the diviners saying, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it to its place. And so they said, if you send away the ark of of God of Israel, do not send it away empty. By all means, return it to him with a trespass offering. Then you shall be healed and it will be known to you why his hand is is, uh, not removed from you. And they said, what is the trespass offering that we shall turn to him? And they answered, five golden tumors and five golden rats, according to the number of the Lord of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and all your lords. Therefore, you shall make an image of your tumors and the image of your rats that ravage the land and you shall give glory to the Lord of Israel and perhaps he will lighten his hand from you and from your gods and from your land. And so why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts when he did mighty things among them? Did they not let the people go that they might depart? Now therefore make a new cart, take two milk cows which have never been yoked and hitch the cows to the cart and take their calves home away from them and then take the ark of the Lord and set it on the cart and put on the articles of gold which you returning to him as a trespass offering in a chest by its side and send it away and let it go and watch if it goes up to the road to its own territory to to Beth Shemesh then he has done us this great evil but if not then we shall know that it's 
not his hand that struck us. It just happened to us by chance. And the men did so. They took two milk cows and hitched it to a cart and they shut up their calves at home and they set the ark of the Lord on the cart and the chest with the golden rats and the images of their tumors and the cows headed straight to the road for Beth Shemesh, which is a Jewish town. And they went along the highway, lowing as they went. I like that. And they did not turn aside to the right or to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them to the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping in the wheat harvest in the valley. And they lifted up their eyes and they saw the ark and they rejoiced to see it. And the cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he stood there, a large stone, a large stone was with him. And they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the chest that was in it, and which was the articles of gold, and put them in a large stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices the same day to the Lord. So when the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, they returned to Ekron the same day. These are the golden tumors which the Philistines returned as a trespass offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron, and the golden rats, according to the number of the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and countries and villages, even as far as the large stone of Abel on which they sat the ark of the Lord, which the stone remains to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. Oh, but then, verse 19, Then he struck the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck 50,000 and 70 men of the people. And the people lamented because of the Lord and struck the people with a great slaughter. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the holy God, holy Lord God? And to whom shall it go up from us? And so they sent messengers, the inhabitants of Kirjath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord and, and come and take it down and take it with you. The Philistines decide to send the ark back to Israel and they advise you need to send it with a trespass offering. Now before we assume that the Philistines understood the Jewish law and the Jewish sacrificial system, the Jews had a trespass offering when they, when they willfully you know, disobeyed God. There was a prescription of what they would do. They would come to the tabernacle and what they would offer. But we read this and think, oh, they knew the Jewish law. No, 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 no. What this is showing you is an example of what's called sympathetic magic. It was a very cultish practice. Sympathetic magic was an occult practice where you would make an image of that that was afflicting you, and by it, you were made better. So they made these images of these tumors, at least we hope they were tumors in this instance, because that would be just awful. And uh, they made some images of these rats that were obviously involved with the plague in some way. And then, and then they put the ark on a, on a cart. And they put these two milk cows that had just had little, you know, baby cows. And they, they, they lock their babies back at the farm. And they say, we'll see what happens. If the cows just forget their babies and just start walking toward Israel, well, we know, hey, you know, it was the Lord. The Lord was doing this to us. But if they turn back as is natural and go and find, you know, their babies, well, we just know it was bad luck, you know, especially giants with hemorrhoids. But anyways, they, 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 no wonder Goliath was so grumpy. But the cows head straight to Israel, straight to Israel, and all of Israel rejoices because the Lord had brought back the ark to them. And the people sacrifice, but the chapter ends with this tragedy because somebody decides to look into the ark to see the law of God. And God judges them, but understand why. You know, there's a debate between scholars of whether it was actually 50,070 or whether the actual Hebrew text reads 70 people and the 50,000 was a copious heir and we could, you know, spend a well time. I don't know. I don't know. Could have been 50,070. If it was just 70, that's still tragic. 70 people die. Either way, this is 
a tragic event. And we can say, why, God? It was such a happy day because, because, because. This was setting a precedence. Remember, the mercy seat covered what was in the ark. The ark was the law, the the manna, Aaron's rod. And by the way, all three of those were really related to moments of rebellion in Israel's life. The, the, the law that was in the ark was the second version. <laughs> you remember why? Because the first version that God gave, the first ones he wrote on a tablet, Moses comes down off the mountain, the people are worshiping a calf and naked and doing all this crazy stuff. And so what does Moses do? He's the only guy to break all 10 commandments at once. Oh, bam, throws it down, breaks all of the commandments. God has to make a new, a new copy for him of the, the same. But anyways, it, it's, it reminds them of their rebellion. The manna, they're always, we don't like this perfect bread from heaven that's free and nourishing. We want, we want, we want. It was, it was always about their rebellion. And, and Aaron's rod was, God made that rod bud because of their rebellion. And so God says, cover all of that with what? With mercy. And they put that, mercy seat, that Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle, eventually someday in the temple. And the high priest would one day a year sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat. All pictures of Jesus and what he would do someday. Listen, the high priest didn't even lift up the mercy seat. Why? Why? Because you don't approach God apart from mercy. You see, I just, again, most of us know this. But sometimes I I hear people say, you know, I want God to be fair with me. Are you kidding me? Are 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 you serious? I deserve. You deserve? Oh, precious one, listen, listen, listen. You and I deserve judgment is what we deserve. Every single one of us. We have all willfully and more often than we would care to admit have willingly broken the law of God. Yet his grace covers our lives. And that's the reason we'll be in heaven with him. Not because you read your Bible and prayed every single day. It's a good idea. That's not why. It's by his mercies we approach the Lord. Without it, death and destruction every single time. Well, the final thing Pastor Rob covered on Sunday. So I want to read the chapter and I'll make some closing comments and we'll be done on time tonight. I like this. Chapter seven, verse one. Then the men of Kirjath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the, on the hill and consecrated Eliezer, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. And so it was, the ark remained in Kirjath-Jerim a long time and it was there 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel saying, If you return to the Lord your God with all your hearts and you put away your foreign gods and the asterisks from among you and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only, he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the children of Israel put away the Baals and the asterisks and served the Lord only. And Samuel said, gather all Israel to Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. And they gathered together at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord. And they fasted that day and said, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. And when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mizpah, the Lord of the Philistines went up against, the, against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. 
And the children of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Now as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a loud cloud upon the Philistines that day and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far as Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and they did not come any more into the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. And the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel recovered its territory from the hands of the Philistines. Also there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went year by year on the circuit from Bethel and Gilgal and Mizpah and judged Israel in all of those places. But he always returned to Ramah, for his home was there. And he judged Israel, and there he built an altar to the Lord. In chapter 7, for a little bit, (laughs) Israel gets it. It's not about an it. It's not that it will save us. The magic box will save us. Oh, if we just do this, the Lord will be on our side. Israel realizes the Lord will save us. The problem with the Philistines was never the Philistine might. It was Israel's sin and God's hand of blessing being removed from them. And so as Pastor Rob taught us on Sunday, the right response is to repent To say, Lord, change my heart and change my mind. And under Samuel's leadership, they get right with God. They put away the foreign gods. And as they do, he starts to fight for them. He was always the secret to their strength. God has way better weapons, by the way. He's using thunder and all this other stuff. The Philistines were confused and defeated before Israel, not because Israel was a great people, not because they were great warriors, but because God is a great God. And to remember this, they set up this stone they named Ebenezer. This is important to note because that great hymn, Come Thou Fount, it references this story. I mean, you know, we we sing that line, Here I lay, raise my Ebenezer. And we're always like, I have no idea what that means. (laughs) But I'm raising it, Lord. I'm raising it to you. This is what it means. A stone of remembrance. Lord, I remember every time that I have gone my own way, you still love me, you're still gracious, but hard is that road of sin and rebellion. Hard. And yet, and yet, and yet, every time I turn to you, repent of my sin, submit to you, You don't say to me, oh, it's about time. Oh, it's wrong with you. No. Then you become my defense. And I want to remember that, Lord. I want to remember that wise is the man and the woman. He says, Lord, I'm going to serve you. Samuel goes all around the nation in a circuit, preaching this to the nation of Israel. But notice 
mom and dad. Notice grandpa, grandma. He also goes home to Rama. And he builds an altar in his home. It's so good for you and I to preach the gospel everywhere we go. Because there is no one like the Jesus you and I serve. But please, please, please don't forget to build that altar at home. You dads, make there be an altar in your home where there is times to worship Jesus, to talk about Jesus, to remind your kids it's all about Jesus. Oh, we don't have a dad at home. Then you moms, step up like Deborah. Step up like Esther and Ruth. And you build that altar in your home. The kids are too important. The Lord is... (laughs) We don't want to miss him. So build the altar in our home. Raise that stone of Ebenezer. And serve the Lord. Well, in so good. And then comes chapter 8. Saturday night, Sunday morning, whenever you choose to come to church here this weekend, if you do, I know some of you ladies are at the women's retreat. It's awesome. You'll be blessed. You may want to check it out when you get back. Because what happens in chapter 8 is the turning point in 1 Samuel. And I also believe one of the most applicable parts of the entire book. Because what Israel does in saying, we will have a king, it so mirrors what you and I do with relationships, with our jobs, with where we live. And if we don't learn from chapter 8, we will end up making the same mistakes as the children of Israel. So, 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 whether you're here live or not, Don't miss this weekend as we get into 1 Samuel chapter 8 in our Deliver Needed series. Let's stand together. Father, you are good. And we love that you are good to us because we know us. We know we don't deserve it, Lord. We know there is sin and rebellion, Lord, and we need to be covered by your blood. We don't ever want to take off the mercy seat and try to get at you apart from grace. No way. Lord, help us to know and understand as those that are very familiar with grace that it's also important to serve you with all of our hearts. To put away those foreign gods that we know can't save us, but we we love to worship at their altars. And you said, Lord, in the Sermon on the Mount that those that hunger and thirst After righteousness, they will be filled. So often, Lord, we don't hunger and thirst for you because we're filled with the junk of this world. We're filled with the priorities of this world. And so I pray, Lord, tonight for for some of us, maybe even all of us, Lord, would you clean out the junk? Would you clean out the stuff that we worship instead of you? And may there be a true desire in our heart. I just want to see, Lord, how close I can get to you. Not to be a legalistic Pharisee, because you are so lovely. And Lord, may we raise that stone of Ebenezer in our own hearts. May we raise it everywhere we go. Especially, Lord, may we raise it at home. 
May there be altars built in every home that there is no one like the God of Israel. Lord, we worship you. We adore you tonight. Your son's precious name. Amen.